Welcome to the UN and Organised Crime podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Ian Tennant. As multilateralism itself comes under intense pressure, this podcast series analyses the UN response to organised crime with some of the world's leading experts as we try to unpack diplomatic discussions, policy developments and programme implementation. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jarrett Blaustein, who is an Associate Professor and Director of Education in the School of Regulation and Global Governance in the College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University. We're talking just ahead of the 11th Conference of Parties to the UN Convention Against Transnational Organised Crime, which takes place in Vienna from the 17th to the 21st of October. 22 years after the adoption of the Convention, Unfortunately, transnational organised crime remains a growing and diversifying threat for governments and societies alike, despite almost all countries in the world having signed up to this treaty. Our talk with Jarrett Blaustein, who has recently co-authored a book on the UN's response to organised crime, including how the multilateral system is approaching crime as a development issue. Jarrett, your book, Unravelling the Crime Development Nexus, is of particular relevance to delegates at the upcoming conference as they seek to take stock of the implementation of the convention. The book, which you have co-authored with Tom Choder and Nathan Pino, was published by Roman and Littlefield in July. Jarrett, welcome to the UN and Organized Crime podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here, and I really look forward to having the opportunity to talk a bit about the book, especially in the lead-up to this important event. Thank you very much, Jarrett. I mean, I have to say, this is quite a niche topic you've covered for the book. Why do you think it was important to explore what you call the crime development nexus? So I'll give you a simple answer to that, and I'll then elaborate with a more complex response. The simple answer is that since the mid-naughties, crime has come to be recognized as a development issue, and this issue linkage has been formally institutionalized within the Sustainable Development Goals most notably in relation to Goal 16, but also in relation to various other targets and indicators that sit within several other issue areas. In terms of the more complex answer, I would say that acknowledging these links is necessary for addressing the underlying drivers and enablers of illicit activities. Now, why is this the case? Well, I think it's because it's pretty well established that economic and social conditions and economic and social policies have the potential to create or regulate illicit markets and generate or mitigate structural and cultural risk factors associated with criminality. Now, on an empirical level, I think these relationships are quite complex, and we know that the conditions which create and sustain illicit markets cannot be controlled or regulated via law enforcement activities or a criminal justice response alone. So developmentalizing the crime problem, as we describe it, may therefore create a useful platform for building innovative, multi-sectoral interventions, which can help us to address the underlying causes of criminogenic harms. And these are things like inequality, social disorganization, and strain, as opposed to just focusing on the symptoms. And this analogy of treating the disease rather than the symptoms, it's not particularly original from a criminological standpoint, but... This idea of the crime development nexus and its institutionalization within the Sustainable Development Goals is a relatively novel and important development, historically speaking, because I think the international crime policy agenda and the UN's crime program 
I think they've historically been quite siloed in relation to other spheres of global governance. And in all honesty, despite some significant developments over the past 30 years, such as the adoption of the UN conventions, crime has largely been treated as a well relatively unimportant and unproductive sphere of international cooperation. So I think the developmentalization of crime creates opportunities to do things differently and perhaps overcome some of the obstacles to governing crime globally via the UN conventions and their Vienna-based custodian, uh, UNODC. I think this is a positive development, but I think at the same time, we need to acknowledge that this issue linkage did not simply come into being because a group of experts persuaded a group of diplomats that it needed to be formally acknowledged as a development issue, but rather this agenda and the assumptions underpinning it have been shaped by a combination of ideological institutional and political economic forces over a long period of time. And so our book, Unraveling the Crime Development Nexus, examines the historical evolution of this agenda in relation to the development of global capitalism for the purpose of understanding whose interests it serves and what changes are necessary for salvaging and transforming what I think many international crime policy insiders would recognize to be an increasingly broken and dysfunctional system. It's quite interesting what you say about the um, development response to crime or the development understanding to crime being institutionalized at the SDGs, but the other bits of governance of crime policy at the UN remaining comparatively siloed. So when you looked into the history of how the governance of the UN crime agenda has developed, did you find out anything new or anything that surprised you? We discovered a few really interesting things. And the first thing I'd say is that our historical analysis revealed that this link between crime and development has long served as an implicit focal point of international attempts to govern crime. So even before the League of Nations was established, it is clear that international attempts to regulate or control activities such as maritime piracy, the trade in African slaves, anarchist movements, and various forms of trafficking were driven at least in part by economic and social development concerns. Now, what this means is that the system of global crime governance, which exists today, is very much rooted in an established tradition of states working together to create conditions which are conducive to economic growth. And particularly, we mean order and stability. Now, International and later global efforts to govern what political scientist Anya Jacobi has elsewhere uh, characterized as common goods and common evils are therefore, I think, responsive to but also enablers of global capitalist development. Now, I I think something else which really struck us while writing the book was the various ways in which the history of European colonialism and its post-colonial legacy have shaped our current model of global crime governance and the institutions which have been established to facilitate this ongoing project. Now, we discuss these influences quite extensively in the book and note, for example, that seemingly all of the universal assumptions about crime, about criminal justice, and about the rule of law, which have essentially guided the international crime policy agenda since the UN and its predecessor, the League of Nations, were established, have been anchored in European norms and traditions. Colonialism also established a near universal modern 
I think, institutional architecture for crime control of all of criminal justice systems, which essentially remain an enduring feature of formerly colonized countries even today. And I think we often forget that these modern institutions of governance were, in many cases, unwanted transplants across much of the world. And in the context of colonization, they were really never established to promote liberal democratic outcomes. Now, I think finally, along those lines, at a structural level, many of the underlying economic and social problems which we might associate with crime and which are, I think, often most pronounced in developing countries can really be traced back to the legacy of colonialism as well, particularly in terms of the enduring relations of dependency, but also governance structures and the social and political fault lines that this entire process created. Now, I think acknowledging these formative influences is quite important for anybody who is working to address harmful, illicit activities, particularly in the global South, because the international crime policy agenda today remains overwhelmingly oriented towards addressing these problems in this particular context. And this is something I'll probably have a chance to talk about a little bit later. But I think our realization here, and this is something which has really stuck with us, is that global crime governance and the associated institutions which have emerged over time to help facilitate this were never really established to regulate the activities of powerful countries. Now, I think this touches on a third point, which is that our existing architecture of global crime governance is not, and probably cannot be, and probably was never really even meant to be an effective platform for collectively addressing global, and I emphasize global, harms. And that's not to suggest in any way that the work of UNODC as a custodian of the conventions or SDG 16 is unimportant, uh, because the entity plays a very important role in terms of sustaining an institutional locus for cooperation, while also using its research and advocacy to draw attention to new and emerging problems. And that stuff's important, and some of the work that's undertaken by its global and regional programs is also quite impressive. But I think ultimately there's a reason that UNODC is governed by the conservative Vienna-based commissions. And there's a reason why the UN's general purpose fund has been depleted over recent decades as donors have shifted to a funding model that allows them to essentially benchmark their cash for specific projects and activities that align with their interests. And there's a reason why UNODC has never established regional programs in North America or Western Europe. And I suspect you'll probably ask me about this in just a second, but there's a reason why key policymaking forums are becoming increasingly inaccessible to civil society actors who are seen as potential disruptors to an increasingly fragile political consensus about the global crime problem and the dark side of globalization. And so I would repeat again, the system here was never really designed to serve as an effective platform for collectively addressing global harms. And this is why we advocate for some fairly radical changes to the system in the conclusion of our book. Before we talk a bit more about how different stakeholders engage, if you could expand a bit more on what you mean when you say that the Vienna-based commissions are um, conservative. Yeah, I think one of the challenges is that there's this system in Vienna where decisions need to be made by consensus. So any declaration that is passed has to basically be agreed upon by everyone in the commissions. And that is quite limiting in the sense that crime... I would say is quite a, and probably has always been quite a controversial issue, and there's probably limited scope for, I guess, universal agreement between different member states about, you know, what crime is or what should be seen as a crime and how these these problems should be addressed. So I think the real purpose of the Vienna-based system is to maintain that space for 
diplomacy to continue within the scope of the conventions and to kind of chip away at some of the technical aspects of this while I think managing some of the potential political disagreements which are likely to emerge, particularly when you bring more contentious agendas such as those relating to human rights into the mix. And I think that's something that's quite interesting. Now, we can compare the Vienna-based system with that of New York. And again, here there's a little bit more scope for perhaps advancing some more progressive agendas uh, simply due to the fact that you know there, there is a, a less restrictive model of policymaking in the General Assembly in terms of getting approval from member states to take a, an issue forward. You don't need a consensus, if that makes sense. Thank you. I, I think one of the ways, you know, that new ideas come about in the, in these four, uh, whether it's Vienna and New York, is from external participants, including what we would call civil society. And in your book, you make some quite strong points about the importance of civil society engagement in UN processes and organized crime. So why do you take the view that civil society should be involved in UN policymaking on these issues? I think that's a really important question, and there's a a few different sides to that. Now, the first thing I would say is that global crime governance as an empirical phenomenon must not be reduced to an interstate process in the first place. It's not just something that states are engaged with. There's a wide range of actors around the world who are working to address these problems. And it's also not something that an international organization like UNODC can simply administer or coordinate on its own using a combination of diplomacy, research, and advocacy. Again, there's an important role for UNODC to play, but global crime governance is really a networked activity. And there are a range of civil society actors at various levels who play and have long played an important role in shaping the international crime policy agenda, as well as supporting its implementation. And I think both of these roles are important to acknowledge. But I think at the moment, at least in Vienna, and I think as well in New York, there appears to be a growing tendency to treat civil society as a valuable partner from a technical standpoint, but a potential nuisance from a political standpoint. And I think, again, the reason for this is that the consensus between state signatories to the conventions, which provide the UN with a mandate to address complex and controversial issues like transnational organized crime and corruption, is perhaps becoming increasingly weak. And I think giving civil society actors a seat at the table perhaps risks creating or highlighting areas of disagreement, which might negatively affect the motivational postures of states when it comes to cooperation and voluntary compliance with the existing regime. Now, holding the pieces together, this is a valid and important consideration, and it's undeniable that the UN and the wider global liberal project is in crisis. But I think the question that we really need to ask ourselves at this point um, is, what's the point of going through the motions and preserving a system that may support incremental progress at a time when Really, we need radical changes urgently to build a more just and sustainable global order. So I think just going back to your question about why civil society should be involved with UN policymaking, well, I think for one thing, civil society actors represent an important link between governing institutions and actors and the people on the ground who are actually impacted by illicit activities and markets. And I think they have the potential to provide a voice to marginalized communities who may be ignored by their governments and perhaps even victimized by criminal justice institutions. And I think democratizing the international crime policy agenda, particularly with 
within the context of the SDGs, I, I think this necessitates creating opportunities for the voices of those who experience crime and whose support will be necessary for translating global policy priorities into contextually appropriate and locally sustainable programs and initiatives, well, they, they need to be heard. So that's the first point I would say about that. The second is that civil society participation promises to bring expert knowledge and evidence to politically sensitive debates. And in principle, I think this may enhance the quality of dialogues and negotiations, which are being used to develop common positions, statements, and declarations. Now, It'd probably be naive to suggest that the international crime policy agenda can or should be approached as a uh, purely technocratic exercise. But if there is uh, no meaningful global consensus, then perhaps the rules need to change to accommodate a productive contestation-based model of agenda setting. And, uh, you know, I think we have something closer to this in the UN General Assembly in New York. But before this, you know, before the commissions were established in the early 1990s during the Cold War, the UN was actually home to some very interesting and contentious debates about the causes of crime and how they should be addressed. So I think the point here is that there's nothing inevitable about the current model that we have. And I genuinely believe that there is scope to imagine a new model for policymaking in this context that creates a meaningful space for civil society actors to, I think, shape the conversation. Now, I think the only final point I would say about civil society, and I think this is something that's important to bear in mind, uh, civil society is comprised of a range of actors, and we shouldn't just automatically assume that their interests align with each other or indeed that of the public good. And so in our book, we discuss the extent to which UNODC's work has been influenced by its growing dependency on sovereign donors. But I mean, let's not pretend like civil society organizations are not under similar material pressures and that these pressures don't influence their work. And so we really argue that they're part of the same political economy and opening up the process of policymaking at the international level to civil society participation, while desirable in terms of diversifying the debate, it would also, I think, require us to ask some difficult but important questions about who should be able to access these forums and for what reasons. And I think this is where there's some interesting, I think, work to be done in terms of conceptualizing how we might try and regulate a more formalized model of civil society involvement with this particular policy sphere, but also with the United Nations more generally. Thank you. I mean, you've, pa- you've painted a picture of some big challenges and what you call a, a crisis in the international system. But you've also laid out some options for how we might start to make things better, including for democratizing the UN policymaking sphere on crime and, and more generally, including by opening up more access for civil society. So if I can ask you kind of if you look into the future, firstly, you know, what your pessimistic outlook would be for the future and what your optimistic outlook would be for the future in better addressing crime covenants through the UN. It's actually it's actually a bit of a tricky question at the moment, given everything that's going on in the world. I, I guess I would say pessimistically, probably the most likely scenario is that our approach to governing common goods and evils fails, or perhaps more accurately, is just not permitted to evolve. And I guess the risk there is that it becomes irrelevant to, or perhaps even an obstacle to, some of the more ambitious aspirations of the Sustainable Development Goals. I guess that's my pessimistic assessment. Optimistically, I think the institutionalization of UNODC's portfolio as part of the SDGs 
Well, I, I very much hope that it will create scope for governments and civil society actors to develop innovative and comprehensive solutions to the underlying causes of crime and, you know, maybe shift the focus towards addressing, again, you know, these underlying issues such as inequality. What I think I would like to see, at least in the next few years, would be perhaps a shift away from this emphasis on crime and development, and maybe starting to think a little bit more about the relationship between harm and sustainability. And I guess the reason for this is that I think a harm sustainability frame for governance would maybe create a more productive and inclusive platform for developing systemic interventions at a global level and perhaps shift our gaze from strictly looking at illicit activities originating in the global south to a broader spectrum of harmful activities that contribute to inequality and global warming and other forms of harm uh, or undermine the rule of law around the world. And I think we just have to take this more kind of expansive approach to addressing these issues if we really want to make progress uh, within the relatively short period of time that we may have to do so. So those would be the two scenarios, the two trajectories, if you will, that I perhaps see playing out in the coming years. Um, I think a lot of that will come down to leadership at various levels and amongst various people who are involved with these networks of governance. So hopefully kind of putting that alternative discourse out there will generate some innovative conversations and perhaps a bit of reflection. But I guess in terms of a material shift that would, I guess, help to reorient us towards the path that we need to follow, I don't necessarily see where that would come from at this particular point in time. And I guess I find that a little bit worrying. So I think that leadership is very much going to have to come from within these existing networks, both from established organizations like UNODC, members of the Global Initiative Network, but also civil society actors around the world. And when I talk about leadership, I don't think we necessarily need to defer to you know, the Secretary General of the United Nations or diplomats in Vienna or even, you know, executives at UNODC in Vienna. But I think, you know, leadership is something that all of us can, I guess, work to promote and, you know, find ways of changing the narrative and shifting our focus to addressing this broader spectrum of harm. So that, that is, I guess, my sense of where we might go in the face of these challenges. Well, you've laid out some quite different visions of the, the future there, but I think the main message that I take from you is that there's a need for more engagement and movement from all of us who have an interest in trying to enhance and enhance the response to, to organized crime at the, at the multilateral and the, at the national levels. And I think that's a message that everyone listening to this podcast should take away. I just wonder if you could give a final, very short message for those delegates who are coming from member states all over the world uh, as they turn up at the UNTOP Conference of Parties in the middle of October. Yeah, look, I think my message would be pretty simple, actually. I would say be ambitious, because you don't have a lot of time in the grand scheme of things. And I would encourage you to work towards developing strategies for addressing the causes of transnational organized crime and corruption, rather than, again, simply preventing or treating the symptoms. And I think I would say that if the formal institutions that we associate with global crime governance or those kind of official forums don't provide you with a meaningful platform for doing this, then perhaps this trend towards the developmentalization of crime within the SDGs may afford you alternative avenues for doing so, at least in the short term, while you are kind of thinking more broadly about what a shift towards harm and sustainability governance might look like. 
But I would also say to those of you who are not afforded a seat at the table and who are perhaps feel excluded from some of these important deliberations, I, I think I would say perhaps it's time to recognize again that global crime governance does not necessarily need to be centered on the conventions in the Vienna-based system. They're by all means important insofar as they get states to the table, but a lot of the work that is being done around the world and I think will be done in the future will be through networks such as the Global Initiative and through other partnerships that form between organizations and individuals around the world and even local governments who are, I think, working to address similar issues and decide to develop their own platforms for sharing knowledge and exchanging technical expertise and potentially even resources. And, and this is something I think we've learned from the pandemic, but you know, with, with, with technology at our fingertips and the ability to connect with people around the world, I think there are alternatives out there. So if the system is not working, or at least it's not working for what we maybe need to do right now, then perhaps it's time to start imagining some alternatives that can at least complement the formal proceedings that are going on and create the spaces that are needed for advancing a more progressive and perhaps even a more radical global agenda for change. Jarrett, thank you very much. That's been an incredibly enlightening conversation. And your book is really an important contribution to the global policymaking and evidence base on this issue. Uh, at the beginning of the interview, I said it was quite a niche project that you've undertaken with this book. But through this conversation, I think we can all appreciate the fundamental issues that you're trying to analyze and address through it. And we hope that some of the lessons that you've advocated will be taken forward. And we look forward to hearing more from you, both in those formal meetings and in those informal networks and other conversations that you've also described. So, Jarrett, thank you very much for spending the time um, to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been great. You've been listening to the UN and Organized Crime podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Mm-hmm.